Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of the Karma Sense Foodcast. I'm Davey H., and this is the episode 42 episode. Thanks for joining me for this episode 42 of the Foodcast. The number 42 has so much significance, at least to me. It was the great Jackie Robinson's number when he played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. It's the so-called critical angle of a rainbow. When you see a rainbow, it's always at an angle that's 42 degrees from where you're viewing it. 42 also has a critical place in three books that are especially meaningful to me. First, there's Lewis Carroll's Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which I heavily cited in episode 35, The Sugar Substitute Rabbit Hole. Second is Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, which I cited in the very first Dear Davy H. episode, episode 5. And in episode 42, I introduce a third book that's meaningful but ignored by so many of us, The Law of the United States, Title 42, The Public Health Service. It's a law that harkens back to the 5th Congress of the United States, who, in 1798, passed the Act for the Relief of Sick and Disabled Seamen. <laughs> It actually funded hospitals to ensure that workers who provide critical services to our country had access to high-quality, affordable health care. And this was back in the time when Congress would cooperate to create cohesive health care plans that benefit the nation. It's not a fictional tale like Alice or Hitchhiker. This really happened. You can look it up. In fact, if you do look it up on the Google machine, Odds are the first listing will be from the Cornell University Law School Legal Information Institute. Now, I don't know that because I'm some kind of legal scholar. My background with the law tended to be in the backseat of a police cruisers. However, one of my guests is a legal scholar from the Cornell University Law School, and he, along with his spouse, aren't here to wonk out in the way I often tend to do. Instead, they're here to tell an inspiring story about food as medicine. But before we meet Bernadette and John Bauman, rant. During the summer of 2015, shoppers at Whole Foods had this incredible opportunity to buy an amazing product, asparagus water. Literally, three whole stalks of asparagus shoved into a 16-ounce or half-liter bottle of water. And for this elixir, shoppers had the privilege to pay $6. $6 for three stalks of asparagus and a bottle of water. This wasn't some rare, organic, biodynamic, purple asparagus variety, and the water didn't come from ancient mystical springs from deep within the Amazon basin. No, this was conventional asparagus and tap water in a plastic bottle for $6. It didn't take long before the news went viral and Whole Foods quickly provided a lame excuse while it cemented its reputation as Whole Paycheck. And that's a pity, because the truth is that the healthiest food isn't always the most expensive. In fact, when you consider total cost of ownership, which includes lower medical bills and other lifestyle benefits, healthy food is the best value out there. But its reputation of being more costly is too hard to shake. Vanderbilt University study, Go Commodores, 
no, not those Commodores, these Commodores. Anyway, a Vanderbilt University study found that people consistently associate high prices to healthy options and healthy options to high prices. Researchers showed a few hundred subjects two different versions of granola bite products and declared that one version received a meaningless A grade in healthiness and the other got a gentleman C or gentle snack C. With few exceptions, participants estimated higher prices for the A group than for the C's. Then the researchers turned it around and showed participants two different breakfast crackers. I have no idea what a breakfast cracker is, but when subjects found out that one type cost $2 and the other cost 25 cents, the majority opinion was that two buck crackers are healthier than two bit crackers. And this may be something you probably would have guessed to be the case anyway, so maybe you're not surprised. But another study from Emory University, Go Eagles! No, not those eagles, these eagles. Took a different swipe at the same question. They showed study participants protein bars with the slogan, healthiest protein bar on the planet. Scientists told the subjects that the typical protein bar cost $2. And then they told some participants that the healthy bar cost 99 cents. And others were told that the healthy version cost $4. People in the first group who thought the healthy bar cost half as much as what other bars cost spent significantly more time reading product reviews than those that thought the healthy bars cost twice as much. They were skeptical that something can't be healthy and cheap. This misconception manifests itself in a number of ways that we can overcome. One is that sometimes healthy options are legitimately more expensive than unhealthier choices. Organic apples cost more and are healthier than conventionally grown. Organic meat is more expensive than its conventional counterpart and is almost always a healthier choice. In these cases, you buy the more expensive version as an investment in your health. It's the same reason you pay the copay to your dermatologist to treat precancerous skin cells as opposed to saving that money in hopes that you don't have to pay a more devastating price later. Another possibility is for the healthy option to be close or cheaper than the conventional. To be fair, this is rarely the case, but it does happen. I can get frozen organic blueberries from the Aldi discount supermarket near me that are cheaper than the fresh conventional blueberries at Giant, Stop and Shop, Publix, Kroger's, Ralph's, or Albertsons, wherever you shop. Frozen fruits and vegetables are often more nutritious than fresh varieties because they're packaged and preserved soon after harvesting and not carted on trucks in traffic on the Santa Ana Freeway or 95 and don't make it to your home until two weeks after they're picked. The frozen berries won't spoil either. And how much of your food bill just goes in the trash, he said, plugging Foodcast episode 40, which was not a throwaway. A third option is that a product marketed as healthy isn't significantly better than conventionally grown. An organic banana is usually more expensive but has few health benefits over conventional versions. You may have other reasons for buying organic than health alone, so maybe the extra cost is still worth it to you. Now a fourth option is that you're choosing junk food with a healthy halo. Organic gluten-free versions of chocolate-covered bacon and ranch-flavored cheese puffs are just as harmful as the conventional version. 
Organic processed junk is still junk. One final possibility is that food lacking health claims may be every bit as healthy or more healthy than both the organic and conventional version. What I mean here is that just because a food doesn't say it's organic doesn't mean it wasn't raised that way. This often happens with small farms who can't justify the cost of having their operations certified organic, even though they exceed the requirements. Now, Both the Vanderbilt and Emory studies demonstrate that people use the cue of price to save the time of having to read labels and research the true healthy options. Telling you that this is a fallacy may be interesting, but it isn't necessarily helpful. People jump to the price-health conclusion not only because they worry about cost, but also because they worry about time. They don't have the time to read and research ingredients and health claims. People need shortcuts. So if not price, what? And that's part of what I discussed with Bernadette and John Bauman. So let's meet them. John and Bernadette, welcome. Hi, how are you? Okay. Great to be here. Let's start off with just your professional, personal backgrounds. This is John, obviously. And I went, I went to Cornell Law School, and I was a lawyer for 22 years when I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. I was 41 years old. It was 2002. I was able to work seven more, six more years, and um, then I had to give up practicing law because of, because of Parkinson's and the, and the cognitive issues with Parkinson's. Yeah, Bernadette. I certainly graduated from college with Bachelor of Science in Business Administration. So I found myself in international banking in Miami. And then I carried a boat business, a charter boat business, for six years after I was in the banking industry. And then I, I basically traveled for a little while because I was so lucky to be able to do that. And that's when I met my husband about five years ago or more. John, prior to your Parkinson's diagnosis, what was your lifestyle like? I had all the, the, the perks of being an executive officer of a corporation. I was living the good life, so to speak. And now I'm an inspirational speaker, which I find is much more purposeful. And I'm also an author. I wrote a book called Besides Success, You Ain't Dead Yet. And I think it's helped a lot of people. So there's give and take and everything. So you've adjusted and made the transition. Uh, as far as your focus on your health, your your diet, exercise, back when you were more in the corporate life, what was that like? Well, I didn't pay much attention to it. I used to think the 10 minutes of the elliptical once a month was enough. And um, that wasn't, that clearly isn't enough. Um, I didn't pay attention to my, I was 215 pounds. I guess I could look at my cholesterol. I was not in good shape, and um, I was out drinking a lot and eating steak and going to fine restaurants and stuff like that. Since I was diagnosed with Parkinson's, I've had to, I didn't have a choice. I had to change my lifestyle. Could you talk a little bit about what Parkinson's actually is and what the diagnosis process was like, how you figured out you had it? What's interesting about Parkinson's is that it's, it's a slow-progressing disease at first, so your, your, your substantia nigra, it's called, in your brain, creates a dopamine. And when you get down, you slowly get down to 20%, and that's when the real symptoms start showing up. But when, when you're at 90%, 90%, 70%, you, you do show some symptoms, but you don't realize it's Parkinson's. It's not diagnosed that early. 
loss of sense of smell, some motor function loss, my arm didn't swing, my handwriting got illegible, that sort of thing. So then when my dopamine level reached about 20%, I had all the classic symptoms, both motor and non-motor. And I was diagnosed by a, a neurologist and they told me basically I had Parkinson's. That kind of progression, as, as you indicated, it, it varies from person to person. There's no way to predict how the symptoms are going to progress or increase. Is that right? Right. Everyone's different. We call it like a snowflake. Uh, it's perfect in just the way it is, but it's, it's everyone's different. Some people progress very fast at a young age. Some people progress very slow at an old age. Well, my message is, is that you can influence the advancement of your Parkinson's. Even though it's going to advance uh, into, into degenerative neurological disease, you can influence it, and that's that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk right. about diet, next size, positive thinking. What was your mindset when you found out you had a... I was in shock. Uh-huh. At first, I was in denial. I asked for a, for a confirmatory test. They told me it was an autopsy, which I chose against. I was in shock. There's, there's no playbook for this. There's no instructions. There's no recipe. I wasn't prepared for it. So I went and I told my family, I told my work, and I just kept a positive attitude and worked, worked real hard and tried to maintain my perfection as long as I could. But, but it's, it's quite a shock because it, it, I was an athlete and I was used to softball and, and tennis and I couldn't play those anymore. So it changed your lifestyle. A lot of things I'd like to do that I'd love to do, I, didn't, I couldn't do anymore. What was your physician's advice for uh, addressing and taking care of yourself once you had that diagnosis? This is unbelievable. I was uh, told that I had six months of a honeymoon period when medication would work. And that's all I was told at 41 years old. So um, it's been 15 years now, and, and I show very little symptoms of Parkinson's because of the lifestyle program Bernadette and I put together. And back then, that's what they were saying. And you would have, you basically have 15 to 20 minutes with the doctor and then tell you you have Parkinson's and then, and then they'd say, your time's up. Lack of information, misinformation, misdiagnosis. Uh, it's, it's gotten a lot better, but it's still, it's still, it's pretty fragmented. It's got to be very difficult to be left with that diagnosis and little other advice and being felt like it's not in your control. There are so many combinations of medication that there's no way that a doctor can know what's the best combination for you, and you're not going to do a, you're not doing a self-clinical trial so that you you, you don't do a trial and error. But that's what it ends up being. You're, you try something and see tones down the symptoms, try something else, and you, you finally come up with the, the right combination of medications, but it takes some time. And there's no real guide for the doctors either. They're, they're all over the map. You and Bernadette, however, decided not to just leave things in their hands and, and take control over the matter. You made a, a number of major lifestyle changes, both in your, in your uh, attitude, in your professional life. I say both, but uh, it's more than two. In your professional life, uh, <laughs> in, your, in your physical activity, and in your mindset. And, and it'd be good for us to explore each one of those as we continue this conversation. Which one of those do you think is a good place to start? I would love to talk about John when I first met him. I was living in the Virgin Islands in St. John, actually. And I met John, and I noticed that he had a little bit of a shake in his right arm, the right hand. 
And he told me instantly that he had Parkinson's disease, and I had no idea what it is except for the fact that, oh, that's that Michael J. Fox disease. That's really exactly what I said. And he said, yeah. And I said, oh, I didn't, I don't really know much about it. Tell me about it. And he basically told me what he just described. And I said, oh, that sounds interesting. I went online after I met him and I looked at the different types of diets that were, because I was already a nutrition enthusiast. I worked out all the time. I was always doing races and whatnot, running races. So I was always at my optimal health and and wellness from what I could tell at a 37 year old at that time. So when I did some research, I found out that certain things at that time, because I don't believe that they're honestly true anymore with all these the new changes in medications and uh, all of the types of medications that have come out since then, but I did notice that there was a panel protein situation with medication that he was specifically taking that could block the absorption of medication by eating too much animal protein. Since I was a vegetarian, I included that in our diet, and I discussed with him why I thought this was a good idea, and he began to include himself in his lifestyle, and it started making a difference almost immediately. And as I watched him getting less fidgety, I should say, less shaky and, and showing less dyskinesia, which is the movement of the legs, involuntary movement of the legs. And he would be sitting at his desk and I would see his legs moving and I thought, wow. And then a month later, after we started incorporating regular exercise, because I was already into it, he kind of felt left out. And I said, we don't just work out, we train. So I started incorporating my methods a little bit at a time with him, interval training along with setting different personal records and then trying to break those records with time and with weights and getting him really fit. And honestly, Dave, within three months or less, I saw complete dissipation of some of his symptoms and he got stronger, fitter, healthier. And because he was eating clean and because he was exercising, it was like the magic pill that he wasn't prescribed. It was along with the other ones that he was taking. So it, was, it worked out really well for us, thank God, and we're always grateful for those changes that we continue to do. So little did you know, John, that that trip to St. John would end up in pay dirt. <laughs> True story. <laughs> I, st- I struck gold. <laughs> he did found you- me on a rock, we like to say. I was just on a rock sitting <laughs> there. But did, did it's, I- a, it's, a, it's a great story. It's honestly really romantic because I really took a leap of faith in myself and a leap of faith in my abilities to be a positive person in someone's life that is struggling with this. And I knew who I was at the time that I was not afraid of any kind of a, a change in my life, especially when it comes to some your partner being ill or something. So I, I was ready to help make things better. You talked a little bit about the changes as far as protein. What other kind of changes did you make in the diet? Well, I try to keep out all preservatives, all additives, and any sort of toxic chemicals that are added to foods. Specifically, we, we I always go directly to the Clean 15 and the Dirty Dozen, which many people already might know about it. But if you Google it online, the 15 clean foods that you should buy that are less uh, inhibited by chemicals and pesticides, and then the Dirty Dozen, which are the ones you must absolutely buy organic because they are ridden with pesticides. So knowing that, you'll find that most of them that are the clean 15 have a skin on it so they're protected like a banana or an avocado. So those don't have to be organically purchased as of now. 
Um, and that list often changes from year to year with the one or two fruits or vegetables incorporated. I just also uh, made sure he was eating whole grains with pastas and a lot of rice. Tried to stay gluten-free as best I could. As you might not know, people with Parkinson's often find themselves having trouble gaining weight. So when John started losing so much weight and in front of my eyes, I was like, oh, gosh, how do I keep this in control? So when he has his shakes, I would add peanut butter or nut butters that I think are amazing. And then any kind of vitamins, that because he's already taking so many medications, you can only imagine what it would be to take a handful of vitamins on top of that. So any kind of supplements like vitamin D, uh, I would put in his shake and the peanut butter to add more calories really makes a difference to give him shakes in between. So that's basically what we did, the uh, protein elimination and substitutes. I did a lot of proteins that were soy-based. I did a lot that were, now I find some that are quinoa-based. And I try to keep them uh, with less additives and preservatives than I can too, because they tend to be high in sodium. Now, as far as physical activity, you have adopted some special kind of exercises. When Bert and I first moved to Louisville, um, she she was doing Shanti and Sanity, and I would watch her and just just to be amazed at, at this, this this vigorous workout. And I watched her for a couple of times, and I'm a pretty competitive guy. And I said, I, I, I'm I'm going to try that. I can do that. And I, I didn't do it well, but I did it. And then we moved from there to kettlebell core fitness training, and then did some boxing and did some hot yoga. And the combination of those things and moving those around in variety put me in the best shape of my life. And um, exercise, it, it, it almost has to be a daily thing. If you, want to make, if you want to make a transformation, if you want to just stay where you are, that's one thing. But my feeling is I don't have a choice anymore. Um, people that don't have heart, don't have any chronic illness have a choice. I don't have a choice. I have to do these things. So, for example, this morning I did, I did Tai Chi. He didn't do Tai Chi, he did Ying Yoga. But if I could add, Dave, I understand typically Parkinson's can be an older uh, individual or a senior diagnosis for individuals. They don't usually get it until late in life. However, it has been more diagnosed at an earlier age, whether it's by testing or by toxins, that's what I'd like to say. We have more stuff that's causing this, that's in our bodies, this autoimmune sort of disease. And I, I did research on the exercise portion, and I couldn't find anything that was based on a study. And as, as you were saying earlier about doctors, you know, typically they don't give any advice. And from all the doctors from different symposiums that I think we've been to in the last five years, they're always leery in prescribing a specific kind. They just tell you to, like, keep moving. Well, you know, if someone's not used to working out, they're not going to know what to start doing. And if they're at an older age, it is hard to make sure they don't get hurt. So in what I found, I did find that the spin bike was something that they were uh, promoting, like spinning. One, David Sinney is one of the popular Parkinson's patients that he was an Olympic cyclist, and he and his wife, I know very well, spoke about the David Sinney Foundation, which is what they base basically on cycling, and they do a lot of cycling events. So I put him on a spin bike, and I started doing intervals with him, and that was great. And then I started doing more research as the years went on, and I realized that boxing from the research that they did with the quick switch on muscle memory and all of those muscle memory movements were really important for him to build on. So all of a sudden, we find ourselves in a boxing gym. And with all we know about Muhammad Ali and all of his successes, he was a great person. 
to model and know that he had Parkinson's and was winning the fight. So in Louisville, which is the heart and home of Muhammad Ali, it was really nostalgic for us to be there and to get him in a boxing gym with regular people that box. It wasn't a Parkinson's gym. It wasn't a rock steady boxing, which is now a chain that is all over the country and all over the world. But John was the first person with Parkinson's to actually get involved in that study for rock steady boxing. And since then, they've grown around the world. It's, it's wonderful. John continues to work out, though, in a regular boxing gym because some of his symptoms aren't really there with what he does. He gets a lot of core work and gets a lot of balancing work through yoga. And that's really what they try to do in those rock steady classes. So he's getting really the benefits of both without having to do the same types of exercise every day. But that was the main reason they don't really talk about diet so much because there really is no proven food. They did speak very unclearly about the protein absorption into the, in the intestines about some of the medications he was taking. So that's part of the reason why they really don't talk about nutrition as much because this age where people are diagnosed, it's hard to get them to change their diet let alone someone that's dealing with the disease. On the other hand, there are so many benefits to the kind of diet you're prescribing for healthy people. Yes. Somebody who's experiencing what John experiences with Parkinson's no doubt would get the some benefit from it as well. So it makes complete sense. Well, especially as the care provider should, should uh, sacrifice, if you want to call it that, and get on the same diet as the person with Parkinson's so that they can support them and, and show that they're, they're, they're walking the talk. It doesn't sound to me yeah. like that's a sacrifice to you, Bernadette. It sounds like that's how you want to eat. No, it wasn't. Yeah, it was kind of a reversal. That's why I think the diet industry is in the you know, billion-dollar market industry. <laughs> the people, I think, are always trying to diet and always trying to feel good, not, not necessarily lose weight, but just feel better and have more energy. Especially if you're doing rigorous workouts, you just have to have the fuel, and the right fuel is really important. Right. And I went from 215 down to 170, and my cholesterol was cut in half. I'd stop taking Lipitor. Yeah, so we got him off the of Lipitor. He's now, like, in the best shape of his life, and he keeps getting better. That's a great side effect of that change. Right? Yeah. The only thing I can't fight is the progression in the brain. I can't get him to speak more loudly if his voice is not doing that or some of the other Parkinson's symptoms, which is not finding the right words or getting confused by juggling too many things at one time. So those are the kinds of things that I struggle with now as, as far as his cognitive impairment and some of the voice inflection, if you can tell the difference between his speaking and mine. But what's interesting is we talk about exercise, we talk about nutrition, we talk about positive thinking, but there's also mental stimulation. And that's what, that's, to some degree, that's what Bernadette's talking about. My mental stimul st stimulation is inspirational speaking. I love to get on stage and help people. I can't do a lot of things anymore, but that's what, something I can do. And it, it's focused, it's one thing. It's not multitasking. So it's, it's very helpful to me. I think I get great, great responses from the people. I love to be, I love to give inspirational talks. I would do it every day if I could. You did me the kindness of sending me a book that you wrote a chapter on how to manage and maneuver around life and good times and bad times. Is that something that you learned through your persevering through your Parkinson's diagnosis? I don't know. I've, I, I, I grew up in a middle-class family and, 
I was told by my, my father in high school that I, he wouldn't be able to pay for my college, and I was able to somehow get through college and law school and graduate from a, from a great law school, get a great job. So uh, I've had a lot of successes in my life. Getting over some obstacles was something I knew what to do. Parkinson's is a whole different animal. It's, you don't have as much control, but you do have some control. Keeping a positive attitude is a very difficult thing to do. Um, especially when you're dealing with it on a daily basis. You just have to do it. You just have to, it's the power of the mind. And I'll give you an example of power of the mind. Clinical trials, they require a, a control group that takes a placebo. They get the same benefit as the people with the clinical drug um, for the first three months um, because the people who take placebo think that might be taking the, the drug. That, to me, is the best evidence that the brain is a, is a powerful thing. They're able to get the benefit without without taking the medication. That's all just positive thinking. I, I truly have asked his mother if he was always this optimistic, and was he always this positive? And his mom agreed that he's always been this way. So this is kind of like a novelty that this guy is always happy. He always sees the you know the glass is always half full. And everything is always great, and look at the great things that we do have. And I applaud him for always being so positive and optimistic and finding a way out rather than digging a hole. And that's obvious in the reaction to you initially getting the diagnosis. There was this shock at first, but you made the decision, I'm going to fight myself out of this. It, nutritionally, everyone needs to be a sleuth. Really read the, the ingredients of the foods that you're taking in, your body. That's just really important in specifically the Parkinson's community, but not only that, in people with everyday lives. You know, you are what you eat, and that still remains the same. Uh, having great uh, nutrition is the building block of building a great stamina and building your endorphins, and exercise helps with that. And if you're not doing the nutritional part and you're just exercising, you're really just building walls for yourself rather than letting yourself get better. I was just speaking to a girlfriend of mine that I haven't talked to in a while. She's 60 years old, and, and she's still a weightlifter, and she's still a bodybuilder, and she eats clean, and, you know, she's so... Uh, absorbed with it. I said, you know, I do do the almond milks and stuff. She said, well, you can make your own almond milk. You know, they add all those carcinogens. And so, you know, you can get really crazy with all of it. So I just advise people to just stay basic and um, just try the try to do the swathing of things and eliminating things a little bit at a time. And next thing you'll know, you'll be feeling better and you'll be encouraged to look for better ingredients and better foods to eat. One thing that hasn't been touched on yet is uh, uncovering your purpose and having faith. And that uh, faith is, is whatever higher power you, you believe in. And that, that there's a higher power out there that has a plan for you. And, and you got positive for a reason. And by uncovering your purpose, everyone has a purpose. It, it's, it's already there. It needs to just be uncovered. It could be volunteering with a support group. It could be getting involved with the hospitals. It could be volunteering and charities, it could be. Whatever it is, you need to find your purpose and um, uncover your purpose. And that's what brings true happiness. That's very timely, John. I just read a study that was made, and the difference in lifespan of people who uh, have a defined purpose and people who don't have a defined purpose is seven years. Wow. Okay, what's the best way to keep track of what you're up to? 
you can go to my website, John Bowman, J-O-H-N, B-A-U-M-A-N, that's two N's, dot com. That gets you into my website, and that gives my, my phone number and my email address. I take phone calls from people, I take emails from people, but just go into my website and you'll, you'll get and all that information right there. And you can, you can buy several of my books through, through my website as well. As John said, Bernadette, who's not a professional nutritionist, took charge of helping John implement the lifestyle changes that would make a difference in John's quality of life. She did a lot of independent research, which drew her to many common-sense dietary changes that they should make. And over time, she taught herself how to make those smart choices that are good for their health without compromising their savings. I asked Bernadette how to teach us how to shop like a Bauman, and this is what I learned. Well, Dave, the Bauman challenge of shopping in the grocery store is this. Pretty easy. You're going to actually shop the parameter of the grocery store. So basically everything is, you eat is going to be refrigerated or frozen or of, that, of the like. So use the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15 that you can find on the web, specifically because you're definitely going to save a lot of money on, on, on organic foods that way. And you're going to live on a base of a Mediterranean diet that includes a lot of healthy greens, beans, plant-based proteins, and all of those you'll find within the parameter of that. Now, you also have to remember how many calories are you really needing to take in if you're an active person, if you're moderately active, or if you're sedentary. In that case, you need to calculate and figure out how many calories you do need and then realize that you may not be able to get that amount of calories with that amount of that type of food. So that's when you add in protein shakes with the nut butter. So you want to always buy an organic nut butter. Hopefully you're picking almond butter. Try that and see if you can come under $150, and I bet you can, for a one-week shop. For one-week shop and two people. Two people, I, I do usually $123. Okay. And you're in Florida, so is that in Publix or something like that? That's Exactly, that's in public. And, you know, we also don't drink anything except water. So any kind of juices or any kind of juices that you buy in the grocery store, if it's not from a real juice maker, like someone that has a juice shop, I really wouldn't recommend them because they're really high in sugar. You also want to obviously buy things that are very low in sugar. There's a 15 of 5 and a 5 formula that I use. I usually don't buy anything that has more than 5 grams of carbs, 5 grams of or five grams of sugar, nothing more than that. Protein can go up to 15 or 20, but it's usually a 15 and five deal with the carbs and the protein. It's comical to watch it, try to read the label of some of these. Oh, and bring your readers. <laughs> bring your readers to read the cans. Yeah, uh, or the boxes. Bernadette's a, Bernadette's a label reader. She's a woman after my own heart. I am a big time sleuth. And you know what they try to see? And then you have to... You know, as you go through, you get so educated just by reading different things on different packages. Don't just read the front. It's always the ingredients. And as you know, or you might not know, the first ones are always the most dense in the food that you're you're buying. And then it it goes down from there. So if you see something that's high fructose syrup, I think we all know, put that back. Let me tell you how how simple the diets come to me. I eat whatever Bernadette puts in front of me. (laughs) I don't, I, I have not had fast food in five years. I have not had diet soda or regular soda or any sugar drink in five years. And that's, that's, that's basically what I do. 
And that's always if you're trying to transform your eating, your eating profile and your eating habits. If you are just trying to maintain a weight, and of course you can indulge every once in a while, you know, the, the 90-10 rule. Everyone says the 80-20 rule, but I like to say the 90-10 rule. Not a cheat day, but like actually a cheat meal. That would be like one meal out of 21 meals that you're having. So you don't want to have a cheat day if you find yourself falling off the wagon eating something. But if it's in your house, then it really shouldn't be there in the first place. <laughs> so if you're out eating dinner and you really are finding hard to choose something and it happens to be out of the parameters that I gave you, I would definitely indulge but not make it a, a full week of indulging. Okay. But the, the supermarket thing is, is ironclad. Okay, so John, one last question, and this one is for you. Bernadette gives you a cheat meal once per week. What are you going to have? Well, I'm trying to stay away from dairy, so I would have tough shells. I love regatta cheese. I love mozzarella cheese. I love tomato sauce. I love that's what I'd have. I'd have tough shells. Staying away from dairy, understand, but that sure sounds delicious. Okay, thank you, John, and thank you, Bernadette, for indulging us. People will be inspired by what you've had to say and definitely will be interested in following you in the future. So thank you. Great. Sure. Have fun shopping, Dave. I'll check in with you to see how that went. And this is where things go awry. Not through any fault of the Bowmans, but instead because I'm a dumbass. You see, we recorded that interview in late May. When summer rolls around, it becomes impossible for a Hellman to shop like a Bauman. One reason is that the majority of our fresh groceries, produce, meat, eggs, and cheese, doesn't really tend to come from the grocery store. We shop through local farms. Much of those purchases are through a CSA, also known as Community Supported Agriculture. We pay a fixed price over the winter to own a share of what the farmers produce. We're at the mercy of the farmers and nature at that point. We do this for a lot of reasons, but primarily to support our local economy and small farmers and to ensure we minimize our ecological footprint by buying local and in-season. It's just another benefit of living in the snowflake-infested, hippy-dippy, yogadelic, tree-hugging neighborhood where I live. In good years, it's a great deal, and in bad years, it can be a problem. In any kind of year, we never know what we're going to get from week to week, but what it does mean is that any attempt to compare what the H's do with what the Baumans do is an apples to oranges comparison. And apples are out of season. Meanwhile, oranges aren't even local. Also, summer's a heavy travel season for me. I was in New Jersey for a good part in June doing book promotion and having some family time. And tomorrow I'm heading to Central America where I'll be on assignment. When we do travel, we preserve what we get from the CSA or we find neighbors and other outlets for that food. We already paid for it. It's coming whether we use it or not. What this all means is I couldn't do my assignment. Hashtag fail. But everything Bernadette told us in her instructions is fail-safe advice. Shop around the perimeter of the grocery store. That generally means the produce section, the refrigerated sections, and the meat section. Target your produce purchases around the so-called Dirty Dozen and Clean 15 as published annually by the Environmental Working Group, or EWG. I have a link on the show notes. The Dirty Dozen are the 12 or so. Sometimes the EWG gets a little frisky and throws in a few extra. But it's usually about 12 or so fruits and vegetables that you really should buy organic. 
As Bernadette says, these usually don't have a peel that protects the flesh of the fruits and vegetables from pesticides and herbicides. It's not always true. Potatoes have a peel, but they tend to occur on the list. That's because the pesticides and herbicides are systemic. They get absorbed through the roots or some other path. Other foods without peels, such as broccoli, rarely occur on the dirty dozen list. In fact, broccoli is often one of the clean 15. That is, produce that you don't have to worry about buying organic. Another one of Bernadette's points is to consider a Mediterranean-style diet. That means eating a lot of plants with minimal meat and eating some healthy oils. When you cut meat in the diet, it also usually means you're reducing protein. And you can compensate for this by eating more beans and nuts. Bernadette also uses protein powder. People with Parkinson's disease often lose weight and much of its muscle as symptoms progress. To keep this in check, nuts and nut butters add a good dose of protein and calories to keep weight and muscle loss in check. And other healthy oils like olives and avocados and, and yeah, even a little coconut oil also may help to make sure calorie targets get hit. Hydrate with water. Avoid beverages that have calories. Juice should be fresh and include as much of the pulp and fiber of the original fruit and vegetables as possible. Avoid added sugar in your drinks and food. Bernadette has a 5-5-15 rule of thumb. When she does buy packaged processed foods, she looks for fewer than 5 grams of carbs, fewer than 5 grams of sugar, and targets at least 15 to 20 grams of protein. She also realizes that life throws you curveballs, and it's okay to target about one meal a week to bend the rules. The genius in this plan is that almost anyone will be healthy eating this way while still honoring personal tastes and preferences. Bravo, Bernadette. Dumb AVH is just not worthy. And so we close episode 42 of the Foodcast. I want to thank you again for listening. And for the people who have left the Foodcast a review on Apple Podcasts, muchas gracias. I also want to thank Bernadette and John for sharing their story. I have contact info on the show notes, but you can check them out at theinspiringesquire.com. Why not reach out to them and thank them personally? As I said earlier, next week I'll be on assignment in Central America. I'm hoping to collect some Foodcast material while there, but the likelihood of it showing up as an episode next week is pretty low. So y'all probably have next week off. Meaning, until later in July, remember what your old pal Andy Bernard always says. I went to Cornell, you ever heard of it? And I sang in the a cappella group, Here Comes Treble. The cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. Yeah. Little boy blue and the man in the moon. Oh, yeah. My shadows, only one that walks beside me. Oompa, loompa, doompa, dee, dawsome. Dwight is now gone, which is totally awesome.